Well, college rivalries are so much fun and a great part of our culture. Rivalries, especially if not taken too seriously, add levity and humor to our lives, offer us a healthy and relatively mindless distraction when so much seems so serious and can become the source for both antics and humor. Now, Regina and I both went to UCLA. Go Bruins, they won yesterday. (laughs) Well, as Bruins, a bear of which is the UCLA mascot, we grew up on a campus in which detesting the University of Southern California or USC was was very much expected. Unfortunately, that's one school our son Peter's interested in attending. (laughs) But the converse was also true. And there are so many jokes about USC, I just thought I would share some that are relatively benign. Some are not very benign, but these are really benign. And first, uh, why do students choose USC over UCLA? Because it's easier to spell. (laughs) What are the best four years of of a USC Trojan's life? Third grade. How many USC freshmen does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. That's a sophomore class. (laughs) Getting better, isn't it, Peter? (laughs) And maybe my favorite, what does the average USC student get on his or her SATs? Drool. (laughs) That's fun, isn't it, Peter? Silly, yes, of course, uh, but I have to say, Peter, you'll be glad to hear this, USC is a phenomenal school, and I hope you get in. That said, rivalries are certainly uh, fun, and they're part of Americana, and although this is the case, sometimes things can get heated when rivalries are stirred up. Some of you may remember from an intro intro psych course you may have taken years ago, a well-known study conducted in the 1950s called the Robber's Cave Experiment. Briefly, a group of boys believed they were going to a summer camp. They weren't. They were going to an experiment. It was actually a research study, and when the boys arrived at camp, they were put into two different groups, and over a period of time, each group began to speak negatively about the other group. Some things got tense, and the groups became very hostile toward one another. The groups became tighter and tighter and more and more cohesive. And this study led into insight in what is known as group conflict theory. It showed that groups tend to silo themselves into in-groups and out-groups, and that negative thoughts and feelings and actions dramatically increase over time as the groups continue to silo. It also demonstrated that being in a group powerfully influences people within a group for good, but also for bad. When groups form, prejudice, anger, conflict, and tension becomes very problematic. Well, this study, while conducted in the 1950s, is not only as relevant now as it was then, but I believe it serves as a cautionary note to all of us who are human beings. While identifying with a group is potentially very positive. Being part of a group carries enormous risks if we take our walk with Jesus seriously. Risks that are psychological, emotional, relational, and can affect how we show up in the world following Jesus.
clearly being part of a group can be one of the best parts of what it means to be a human being. But being part of a group can lead us astray and way off track from how Jesus wants us to show up in the world if we're not very careful. Our reading today is from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet about 600 years before Jesus was around, and a prophet served as a channel of communication between God and people regarding a bunch of different things, ethics and morality and faith. Prophets, because they worked hard to tell the truth, were often not liked, especially by people in positions of power. Well, after the northern kingdom of Israel was decimated, the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened by the Babylonians. And over a period of time, the Babylonians destroyed Judah, and they took the people captive. It was bad, it was ugly, it was bloody, it was messy. Well, the people from Judah were exiled into the land of the Babylonians, and our reading today is from this time period. And we learn that Jeremiah sent a letter to the people in exile, and it is a tough letter. It is a hard letter. His message to the exiles was basically this. Imagine yourself in exiles, having in exile, having lost everything. He said to the people basically this. You're in exile. Things are terrible. They're hard. They're overwhelming. Lots of you want to go back to the way things were, but that's not going to happen. You're going to be where you are for a long time. So settle in. Start living your lives, have families, make a living, and live within the culture. Oh, and by the way, pray and work for the welfare of everybody, including the Babylonians, who have destroyed everything and are holding you captive. Work for the welfare of the Babylonians. Sounds a little like Jesus to me. So for a moment, let's explore his points a little bit further. In exile, many people thought of the good old days. They wanted to go back to the way things were. And my assumption is they were pining for the past. They dreamed of the way it was, and they wanted to get back to such a way of being and living. And response, Jeremiah says, let it go. It's not going to happen. Instead, he encourages the people to expect a new age, a new beginning, a new way of living with God in charge. But Jeremiah also reminds the people in exile that God is acting even if it did not look like it. Trust God, Jeremiah says throughout his book. Count on God. Believe that God knows what God is doing, even if those good old days you're wanting are not coming back. He says, marry and have children. And he admonishes the people to get on with their lives and become part of the culture that surrounded them and not to isolate themselves or re to retreat into their own groups and silos. Jeremiah did not want the people to silo themselves in in-groups and out-groups. And then he has the audacity to say to the people, Seek the welfare of your captors who have destroyed everything that was important to you. Seek good for them. Seek prosperity for them. And the word that is used in Hebrew here is shalom. Seek 
Shalom for those who have destroyed you. As one person notes, the word shalom means peace and wholeness and well-being and, and healing. Another way of looking at this is that Jeremiah is asking the captives to be a blessing to their captors. Wow. And finally, Jeremiah asks the people to pray and pray and pray. As I reflect upon the exiles and try to imagine what it must have been like to be in their position, I believe Jeremiah's words would have been the last they wanted to hear. I think they wanted vengeance. I can hear the captives saying, what do you mean don't try and go back to the way things were? What, what do you mean don't separate ourselves from our captors and instead integrate into the culture? What, what do you mean seek shalom for them? What, what do you mean be a blessing for them? Are you kidding us? What do you mean, say, trust God and let go of the past and expect a brand new future you cannot even yet envision? Not long ago, David Brooks wrote an extensive article titled, America is Having a Moral Convulsion. Here's some excerpts. And I quote with very slight adaptations. He writes, political scientists note that every 60 years or so, America goes through a moral convulsion. And these moments always share certain features. People feel disgusted. Trust in institutions plummets. Moral indignation is widespread. Contempt for established power is intense. A highly moralistic generation appears on the scenes and attempts to control the national conversation. Groups rise up. There's agitation, accusation, mobilization, and passion. There's an explosive distrust of others, an aggressive animosity, and the urge to destroy comes out. He goes on, today, so many surveys show that a majority of American people say they don't trust other people when they first meet them. And people are drawn to leaders who use the language of menace and threat, who tell group versus group narratives. People revert to their tribe. And now Christian groups are under, some Christian groups, he writes, are under a siege mentality. One thing I find important about these comments and those from other historians and social scientists it, is that this kind of upheaval happens in cycles in our country every 60 years or so. Brooks points out, as others have, some of these periods of upheaval. There was the Revolutionary War period of the 1760s, the Jacksonian uprising of the 1820s, the progressive era of the 1890s, the social protest era of the 60s and 70s, and now here we are again. And so I'm paying attention, and I'm reflecting, and I'm praying, and I'm studying, and I'm immersing myself in Scripture. And I have to wonder if the words of Jeremiah and all of what Jesus taught us about how to live in this world are important for us to keep in mind, especially at this time, if not vital. While we are not in a state of literal exile, I know many people with dramatically differing views who express sentiments that mimic those who have been exiled or who are living in exile. And I have little doubt that much of what David Brooks has to say is descriptively true. It's as if we're living in a summer camp like the robber's cave experiment I described earlier 
where out-groups and in-groups are fiercely and angrily defined and explosively lived out. Now, I don't have the answers, and I'm not going to pretend to know the way out of where we are, but I believe that Jeremiah and Jesus have a lot to say to us about this time of intense rivalry. And the good news is that the teachings of Jeremiah and Jesus are incredibly empowering, challenging, absolutely, but empowering. You see, they give us focus points of how to show up in the world right now as Jesus would have us show up. And it ain't easy. It's not comforting. It's hard as hell. Their guidance leads us away from feeling helpless to being the empowered presence of Jesus wherever we show up. Their wisdom, I believe, moves us closer to God. I believe that our faith has a lot to say to us because if truth be told, as I see it, many of us feel we are under attack, whether we are a Christian, a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, heterosexual, gay, black, white, male, female, old, young, white, indigenous, immigrant, conservative, liberal, or any other group we identify with, I hear people from all over the place saying we're under attack. And I hear this from people with dramatically differing views representing diverse demographics. This is exactly what David Brooks was talking about. This is precisely how the religious Jews felt in exile. We're under attack. We had a fight. So what might Jeremiah and Jesus offer us now, wherever we are philosophically, politically, or on our journey in faith? Well, here are some points I believe that are helpful for us to keep in mind. Words and teachings that come from Jesus and Jeremiah. I hear Jeremiah and Jesus saying to us in this time, relax. Take deep breaths. Do not fear. The most frequent command in Scripture. Do not fear. Trust God. God is fully engaged, in control right now, and in fact, using circumstances and people, even unexpected ones, like God did with the Babylonians for the greater good. God used the Babylonians for the greater good. And the people couldn't see it. Said they wanted to fight. God, I believe, says to us, know that God is in charge, that God knows what is, God is doing. So relax and do not fear and trust God. It's clear from Jesus and all the prophets that God does not want us to retreat into a silo and shut ourselves off from listening to other people. And what is more important than listening to the words of other people is to listen to their pain, their fears, their worries, their angst, and their hopes and dreams. Because all of us, whatever group we're in, have pain and fears and worries and angst and hopes and dreams. All of us. And these things drive what we say. We're not supposed to agree with everybody. But God wants us 
to listen to what is coming from the hearts of people around us. And we don't get in touch with their hearts if all we listen to is what we hear on the surface level. God invites us to go deep with people and find the feelings behind the words. It's what Jesus did in his entire life. It's also clear in Scripture, if you look at the biblical story from beginning to end, that God encourages us to let go of the past. God is a God who moves us along a journey. Look at the people in the wilderness as they were wandering around the wilderness. God asked them to move into a future and they resisted. We want to go back to Egypt. They resisted. They wanted to go back. God wanted them to go forward into a future they didn't know anything about. Our faith our journey is always about moving forward, not holding on and looking backward and pining for the way it was. That's just not the biblical story. It's moving forward. Looking backward is the mistake the Israelites made in the wilderness, and as a result, they paid for it, and they wandered around the desert for 40 years instead of making it quickly to the promised land. It was because they wanted to go backward that they lost in touch with the hope of the future. Life is not about the good old days. It's about the God and Holy Spirit infused. It's about the God and Holy Spirit infused days of the future. Another clear teaching. Hard. Irritating. True. God does not want us to demonize or castigate or cast stones at others. God invites us to put forgiveness at the center of who we are and how we show up. Remember what Jesus said over and over and over to the religiously self-righteous leaders. Recall what Jesus said to those who put laws and religiousness and properness ahead of people. Jesus always put people ahead of positions. Always. W without fail. People matter more than position. Always. It is the biblical story. Yes, we need to have opinions. Yes, we have God-given brains. Yes, we can have strong and passionate opinions. Yes, we need to vote. Yes, we need to share what we believe but I believe God invites us to embrace the truth that every single one of us are wrong about some things we consider ourselves to be absolutely right about. That is called humility. Blessed are the humble, Jesus said. God asks us to express our opinions, but always to consider how we're expressing them and at whose expense. Just to turn the volume up more. Scripture's crystal clear. God is love. Love is the whole point. That's how we're supposed to show up in the world. Every single human being is a beloved child of God.
Let that sink in. Every single human being is a beloved child of God. No exceptions. Jesus died on the cross for all people. Therefore, God anticipates and expects and asks us to show up in the world as if everyone is a beloved child of God. That's tough. Obviously, we're to pray. Prayer's tricky. It's not, gee, God, I want people to feel the way I do. It's thy will be done. Thy will be done, God. I trust you enough. Thy, your will, not my will, your will, God. Even if I don't even know what that is. And I believe that finally, and this is also hard, that Jesus invites us to be a blessing everywhere with everyone, day in and day out. To be the shalom in the lives of other people. To be the source of peace and wholeness and healing and well-being for others we encounter. That's what shalom means. Do we want to change the world? I've talked about the ways we do it. But ultimately, I think it comes down to this. Make the volitional decision each and every day to be a blessing to everyone you encounter. That ain't what we're hearing on the national scene. But it's what Jesus would have us do. Be a blessing to everyone you encounter. Be that presence of Jesus. I believe if we wake up every day and say, how am I going to be a blessing? Oh, Lord, God, help me be a blessing. I just can't stand that person, but help me be a blessing. It'll change our lives. It'll change our walk with Jesus. It'll change the person right in front of us. I get it. I really do. These are very difficult times. Things are scary. Everybody feels under attack. But here's the thing, and I'm going to say it twice because I think it's so important. God does not want us to show up in the world as if we're under attack, but rather as if we're all loved. That kind of flips it, doesn't it? God doesn't want us to respond to others as if we're under attack, but rather as if we're all loved. That's a total game changer. We're not helpless. We're empowered. We're the presence of Jesus. He needs us. And I just shared some of the things I believe we need to keep in mind, but if you want to cut through it all, it's to be a blessing to everyone. And if we pay attention to what God and God's prophets and Jesus have to say, we can show up every day. We show up every day in a way that's going to make all the difference in the tumultuous times. If we pay attention, we can make the difference. Unless, of course, you go to USC. Amen. <laughs> so let us uh, let us just take some silent moments and pray.